As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekul. He is Paul Tenorio, and the U.S. men's national team is going to the World Cup. Officially, they lost 2-0 down here in Costa Rica tonight. Paul and I were at the match in San Jose at Estadio Nacional, but it didn't matter because they didn't lose (laughs) 6-0. So they qualified for Qatar, they finished third in the octagonal, and they will have a direct berth to the tournament in November, correcting the unthinkable failure of 2017 in Cuba, Trinidad, and not qualifying for the last World Cup in 2018 in Russia. Paul, that's, I mean, that's the one and only story tonight, man. It was an incredible atmosphere. It was an incredible game for Costa Rica, um, but the U.S. clinched, and they are back after four crappy years um, of of dread and existential uh, malaise. They're back. Yeah, I mean, it was also like, a weird night in that from the start to the finish because like on the u.s side all you need needed to do was to avoid a six goal loss on the costa rica side you're resting eight guys who are on yellow cards three starters were sitting in front of us in the press box francisco calvo uh Celso borges Keisha fuller and so it it already had this weird mood of like, what's the what's the game going to be like? And then the U.S. lost. So there wasn't like a normal celebration. And at least right away. But by the time we got to see the players after the locker room celebration, you, you could see just how much it meant to these guys, how much it lifted that stress off of them, that burden of 2017 of Cuba, especially the guys that we got to, talked to who had been on the field that day in Trinidad, Christian Pulisic and DeAndre Yedlin, who I thought Kellen Acosta spoke a bit, um, who I thought were eloquent in speaking about it. And they, I mean, like both Yedlin and Christian Pulisic went out of there, acknowledged like the awkwardness of not really wanting to celebrate a loss and then kind of having to just like remember to put their competitiveness aside and celebrate the big picture, which was like, you're going to a World Cup. Yeah. It's pass-fail in qualifying. We've talked about this before. 
And and it's easy to get fired up. And, and I apologize for my voice, by the way. It is completely shot. I promise I wasn't screaming at the stadium. I'm just I think I'm, my body is just giving up on me after the after the octagonal is over. Your now. body knew it was at the finish line too. <laughs> I know, I know. You might have to carry the show, Paul, because I'm struggling right now. But you know, talking to these guys after the game, you know, we we saw them on the field, and I don't know how much of this came through on the broadcast, but it was pretty chill after the final whistle. Like Costa Rica was partying way harder than the U.S. on the field, right? You had Francisco Calvo sitting two rows in front of us in the press area. He didn't dress because they had yellow card stuff. He literally jumped on top of the table after Costa Rica's second goal. And he's like waving his shirt around and going nuts. He's down there on on the track behind the benches as the, the clock's winding down, kind of trying to pump up the crowd. And then the final whistle blows and the U.S. just kind of walks out to midfield. Just sort of like, okay, like we're kind of pissed that we lost, but I guess we qualified. <laughs> And Pulisic, I thought, was particularly interesting. Excuse me. Um, you know, he came out, he had a towel over his head. He's like sagging his shorts a little bit. And he looked kind of down. And then Tyler Adams grabbed him. It was like, he said something to him, like, dude, we did it. Like, we're here. We did it. And and he sort of picked up a little bit after that. But then they got into the tunnel. And that's where kind of the fun began. We weren't able to see any of that. But we did hear a lot about it afterwards uh, in the mix zone. Paul, walk the people through that so they don't have to hear this this gravel coming out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah, we heard essentially that, yeah, once they hit that hallway and they were making their way to the locker room, that it started to hit them a little bit, you know, and that they started to talk to each other and say, hey, we're, we're, we're going to a World Cup. Like, we did it. And they go into the locker room and Greg Berhalter comes in to give a speech. And he's kind of trying to say, look, we're disappointed in the result, of course. We wanted to make history and be the first team to win in Costa Rica. We didn't accomplish that. But the big picture is we're going to the World Cup. We did accomplish our goal that we set. And we are the youngest team in this cycle globally to qualify for a World Cup. And we are the cool youngest. stat, by the way. And we are the youngest team by average age in U.S. men's national team history to qualify for a World Cup. And there's something to be said about that. And the funny part is, like, while he's giving his speech, in the middle of one of the sentences, pop, champagne bottle gets popped before it's supposed to be. Eric Palmer Brown, a little bit of a premature celebration. And that kind of, I think, was like, you know, it kind of set the, it kind of set the tone in the sense of it, it relieved that. Broke the tension. It broke the tension, yeah. It, it relieved that sense of like, are we able to celebrate? Are we not? And guys kind of laughed and joked and, and then the celebration commenced. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, it speaks to kind of like the, the competitiveness of this group and, you know, what they wanted to accomplish in the short term in each and every game. Um, but I think also, you know, I, I like that. Um, I, I like that. I also kind of like, I don't know, it's not great for us, but like that that celebration was theirs. Like we didn't get any bit of it. The media, <laughs> the fans, like we didn't see any yeah. bit of it until Christian Pulisic was live streaming on Instagram on the plane with the guys going back to Europe. Right. It was kind of their moment. It was their thing yeah. in that locker room. I think it's nice that they had that to themselves too. Um, although, you know, it would have made our jobs a little bit, I don't know, a little more colorful. Our article, perhaps. I still think it was pretty good, but whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's good that they had it to themselves. And I think it's good, too, that they that they had the reaction that they did. 
it's sort of a recognition that like, hey, like this this is important and it's cool and it's a good accomplishment and we need to celebrate that. But it's also that like there are bigger things that this team wants, right? They're not going to be satisfied with just going to the World Cup. And who knows what, what the draw will look like. That's on Friday in Qatar, you know, painting a little bit of the picture for you guys, like Greg Berhalter and, and Michael Cameraman, the USMNT press officer, and, and I think several other people on staff at the U.S. soccer, they like had to hustle out of Costa Rica. Like, in fact, um, we were sort of instructed like, hey, Greg has to go quick to Qatar to catch a flight. So like the press conference with him is not going to be very long. And so they were like basically running out of the stadium, down the tunnel, through the little loading dock area that we were in, and out onto a, I don't know if it was a bus or an SUV or what. And they're going, they're flying from Costa Rica, like I think they're in the air right now, probably on the way to JFK in New York, and then over to Qatar. So, you know, the work doesn't stop for them. Um, but I thought it was cool that they had that moment to themselves. I thought it was cool that they reacted the way that they did, honestly. Um and we'll see how it all shakes out eight months from now. You know, a lot will change between now and then. As a young team, a lot changes for young teams really fast. And I think on that note, Paul, it's it's important to kind of look back and reflect over this qualifying cycle, over the last seven months, and even beyond that to the Gold Cup and the Nations League and everything that came before it, because this has been a real journey over the last four and a half years for the national team. It was bleak for a, a long time after Kuva. It wasn't just like that moment, you know, it was the Dave Sarah Chinera and he, I thought did a nice job given the hand that he was dealt, but there was no direction for the team for a long time. And then it, it took a while under Burhalter, and it's still not perfect. Right. Um, but they have come a long way and, you know, I think it's fair to be hopeful for what they might do in November and maybe even December in the Middle East. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's been a process. And that process did start under Dave Sarikin in, in 2018. You know, his task as an interim manager wasn't an enviable one. He took over a team at a time when the Federation was dealing with the failure to get to the World Cup. And there was a lot of change happening behind the scenes and above him. Not really even behind the scenes. So it was very, very visible, right? A new president, Carlos Cadero, was elected. Sunil Gulati stepped down kind of was was asked to step down, essentially. Uh, Dan Flynn, the CEO, announced that he would be stepping down for health reasons and retirement, essentially. Uh, Ernie Stewart was was hired as sporting director in a process that took a while, and, and then he started the coaching search. And through all of that, this men's national team was trying to transition to move forward. No coach had been hired, and Dave Sarakin was giving debuts left and right. I think 23 guys he gave debuts to, and that included guys like Tim... Tim Weah, Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, Josh Sargent, uh, important players. And in one way, in some ways, that was a lost year. In other ways, it wasn't. I think it certainly didn't allow the team to move forward, to your point, and to have direction. And Greg Berhalter took over in 2019. And, and that's really when you can start moving forward because there is a vision. There is a coach that can say, okay, this is how we move forward. But it wasn't perfect. And we saw them go through growing pains. We, we wrote about it. We were covering it. Whether it was the losses to Mexico in the Gold Cup final and the friendly, the loss to Canada in the Nations League, those had real impacts on, on this team, what, what they were about. 
and the way they were going to play and how Greg Berhalter approached everything. And not to go through every little bit of it, but, you know, I think that this team that we saw tonight, even in a loss, but certainly the team that we saw in this window was a reflection of all of that. It was a reflection of the bad moments. It was a reflection of the good moments. And the growth that's occurred within this group has been significant. And yeah, I mean, Greg Berhalter talked about it tonight. I mean, eight months in soccer is an eternity. This team can grow a ton between now and Qatar. Whether it's a guy like Serginio Dest growing at Barcelona, whether it's someone like Josh Sargent, who wasn't here in this window, potentially growing and fighting for a number nine spot, whether it's some guy we're not even talking about that ends up becoming a part of the national team group over the next eight months. You know, there is still so much evolution that can occur. Think about where this national team was eight months ago. Yeah. Conrad De La Fuente was starting the opening qualifier. I mean, shoot, they were just coming out of the summer, right? I mean, John Brooks. It wasn't that long ago that they had, we were talking about have they even accomplished anything you know, before the Nations League and Gold Cup Finals. So much has happened since June of last year. It, it's just crazy, especially with the team this young, how much, how much this team still has to change and grow between now and the World Cup tournament in November. Yeah, and you know, Burhalter and some of the players talked about how much growth there already has been, right? And, and I want to spend some time here, Paul. We have a story that's coming out. Um, by the time you listen to this, it'll probably be out already. Um, kind of looking back at the whole journey from Kuva to Qatar. And for me, one of the main big, huge turning points, there were a couple of them. One was Canada in the Nations League in Toronto in October 2019 and the loss that they took there. But I think the biggest one was really Honduras away in San Pedro Sula back in September. And, and for those who who don't remember perfectly, and I'm sure many of you do, you know, the U.S. had entered qualifying talking about, oh, we're going to get nine points from this first window. And then they go and they draw in El Salvador. It wasn't a particularly good performance, not a bad result, but not a very good game. Um, They draw again at home against Canada. Uh, Not a good performance again and not a good result drawing at home. And then they go down to to Honduras and, and Berhalter changed the formation. It was a weird lineup. It was a bad lineup. And he got the choices wrong initially. And they were down 1-0 at halftime. And it sort of felt like the world was closing in on them. And, um, I mean, Paul, like, we put this in the piece. There was a U.S. soccer employee up in the press box screaming down at the referee on the field in the first half of that game. That is not a normal thing that happens. We were sitting at each other up in the press box there. And, like, we were, like, almost yelling. Like, we were like, what the hell is going on out there? Like, what are they doing? What is this lineup? Blah, blah, blah. blah. I remember my stomach doing – because you you start to think about how quickly things could be going wrong, right? That, right. That, at that moment, it was like, how bad is this going to be if they lose? Yeah. And it, and and the, the reality was really bad. You yeah. know, the conversation around the team would have changed dramatically. Yeah. It's not as if they would have been – you know, out or eliminated or anything. It was three games in at that point and, and 11 to go. There was plenty of time left to get points. But the discourse would have been, I mean, to use a word that has been floating around the USMNT Twitter over the last week, it would have been toxic, like legitimately so. And, and Weston McKenney got kicked out of that camp because he broke COVID protocols and violated team rules. And there was just so much drama. It was so emotional. Like, I remember that camp. We weren't out there running around, man, but we were tired. Like, there was so much happening. 
Um, and I think it took a toll on the team. And I think they approached it. And they said this this week. They approached it kind of naively. They didn't really know what they were getting into. And we saw that in El Salvador and against Canada and again in Honduras. But then that second half happens and everything changes, right? It's like flip gets switched, switch gets flipped. There we go. There it is. One in the morning, flip gets switched, whatever. You know what I mean. Um, and they come out and, and Burhalter switches back to a 4-3-3 and they make three changes at halftime and they score four goals in the second half. And all of a sudden they're off and running, right? And, and from then on, it wasn't easy but it was a lot more straightforward and it certainly wasn't anywhere nearly as complicated as it was over those first three matches. And, uh, you know, it's pretty remarkable to think how much the team has changed from that point to now, especially in this last window. And I think, I don't know, do you want to talk about that? How, yeah. What this last window, especially the first well, two games of it went like? First, I'd like to say in the story, there are some really cool quotes about those moments. I don't want to go too much into it because I do want people to read the story, but some insight into the locker room at halftime and just some cool, cool moments with that the players shared that impacted this team along the way. Um, but for me, Sam, before even going to the last window, I mean, I, I want to pull back or, or zoom in, I guess, and look at the night a little bit. I know the result in the game weren't that important. I'm not even trying to go into that though. I will say that it was probably one of the greatest moments I've had as a journalist to be here uh, to have to go through the anthems as a Costa Rican American. Save that for later. Let's talk about that cool, more in but depth like, later. Yeah. The, the atmosphere was nuts. It was a great. It was a great game yeah. for the home fans. Yeah. Um, but I just I, I think that like I want to go back to just kind of what people were talking about after the game because that I think that factors into everything, which is like a real recognition that some of these guys have been playing again uh, together since they were thirteen and fourteen years old. Yeah, Tyler Adams talked about how Christian Pulisic, it's not just football between the two of them. They go back to residency with the 17s. Yeah. And Tim Weah talked about playing with guys, the 13s and the 14s, with James Sands on the regional team. Yeah, and Tyler Adams as well. You know, yeah. Tyler Adams as well. There are connections in this team that run really deep. And they believe, this group believes, that that factors in to their ability to get through things like the first game at Azteca mm -hmm. and to handle the pressure going into that game against Panama, knowing you need a win. And it's not just the guys who play together as youngins, right? Tim Weah and DeAndre Yedlin gave the best press conference of the whole Ocho. <laughs> it was the amazing. Whole Ocho, also, about just one second. We got to shout out our boy, Danny Nora from Tudane. <laughs> Because they're talking about a boombox, and, and for some reason, they didn't have a proper boombox on the USMNT until this camp. It was like they had a small speaker. They didn't have a big one, and so they couldn't really hear it in a lot of the locker rooms they were in, and they finally got a big one. And so somebody started asking about what kind of music they played, and Danny Nora, who is a massive reggaeton guy, he's like, do you play reggaeton? And, and Tim Weah, he lists off a few artists, and then he's like, what about Bad Bunny? Do you play Bad Bunny? And Tim Weah is just like, yeah, man. I play all that. <laughs> it's very serious. Well, what happened was hilarious. What moment. happened was you, me, Michele, and Danny all at once asked, "What about Peppas?" Because Peppas has kind kind of been a thing for the four of us as a yeah. group. It brought us together. I mean, yeah, I was in Nashville. You were in El Salvador with the two of them. It's a beautiful moment. And it brought us together. But regardless, those two talked about how close they've become with this national team and how DeAndre Yedlin took Tim Weah under his wing. And how Tim Weah became really close with DeAndre and his girlfriend and his daughter. 
And what stood out to me about the quotes after tonight's game and the quotes this week and the little moments that we see between these players at training sessions and after games and when they're around each other, when we have access to them is like, and, and in the interviews we did for this piece that's running on Thursday, this is a super tight knit group. And there has been a real effort towards fostering that and encouraging it and trying to make sure it got, it, it maintained over zoom calls because of COVID and, you know, over the course of qualifying that guys stuck together and I don't think you can talk about this night. I don't think you can talk about what happened in Mexico or Orlando without acknowledging that that played a big part of it. Yeah, especially especially that Mexico game. Yeah. Right, because that was a fight. Um, they were struggling physically at the end of it, but they got out of there, they survived, and they could have easily had all three, as we talked about on a couple of shows ago. We don't need to go back down that road. You know, Paul, I thought the – the best quote I ever got about like the togetherness or whatever they call it, the togetherness of the group was from Paul Ariola a couple of weeks ago. I spoke to him and, and he was like, you know, I'm sure all the fans and I know you guys are like really sick of hearing about it, but we keep saying it because it's true. Like this is kind of like a real brotherhood to us. And that's not something I don't think that's been the case with national teams of the past all of the time. Um, and I think it's important, right? I think it, that helps you carry you through the tough moments. Well, I was talking to somebody who kind of said that it, it had been a part of the national teams for like a, te- a decade long period, you know, starting with that 2002 team and that it, it, it was lost during the Jurgen era was, was the kind of attitude of people who have been around this program for the last few years who were around the program then who you know, were around it even before that, when you talk to people who have been around it, that that was something that was lost in this team. And it's been regained. And I think it's been kind of taken to the next level by the fact that this group is, a lot of this group is so young. And so they are literally growing up together as a national team. I mean, again, not to just belabor the point, but for some of them, since they were 13, 14 years old, for all of them, almost all of them going through their first ever qualifying cycle together, their experiences together and learning on the go, learning on the fly and trying to lean on guys like Christian Pulisic and DeAndre Yedlin and Paul Ariola, who had been there before, Kellen Acosta. There weren't that many guys you could go to. Um, and that was also a really cool thing about this week, Sam, is kind of hearing the quotes and how they contrasted with each other. The interview you did with Brendan Aronson about his experiences in Honduras and in El Salvador and learning what that first cycle, the first window was going to be like. And then contrasting that with the quote from DeAndre Yedlin when he talked about being like, I knew we were going to have a rough go in September. I knew you had to experience it to really, truly understand. And it was just funny to me because it was like there isn't, I mean, those quotes were perfect to contrast against each other because it shows that this is something that can't be discussed and talked about and applied to the next game. Yeah. Like you have to live it a little bit. Yeah. And, and that's what this national team has done through this whole process. And that's why mm-hmm. those moments, like the disappointment of you know, the, the loss in Panama or the loss in Canada, were important. And even... You know, even going to El Salvador, I mean, playing in El Salvador in the first game of qualification couldn't have been 
the it's the worst time to get El Salvador. It was their first game in a, the final round of World Cup qualifying in like twenty a years. Decade. Yeah. Yeah. And so they needed to experience that. And I think that I I, I kind of lo- I don't want to say I like it because it's not I mean that's not the right way to put it, but it's kind of <laughs> fitting that they lost tonight. It's kind of fitting that it was like an imperfect end to qualification. Yeah. Because it's been an imperfect qualification cycle, and but all of those imperfections are a part of this team and their growth process. That note you said about experience, and I think we'll take a break after this because we've been going pretty long in this first segment. That really stuck, struck a chord with me because the one thing this team has not experienced as of yet is an actual World Cup, right? And this is a group that's still developing as players and still coming together as a team. They're still really young. They still haven't had a ton of time together. And when you look at kind of the best national teams in the world they've been playing together for a while a lot of them right and this group they've been playing together for a while but like as kids like as literal children right and now they're coming together as a senior team really for the first time and i think that they will probably have some issues in qatar because of that um i think i'm more hopeful than i was a week ago about what they'll do in world cup because of what we saw from christian pulisic and Gio reyna in this window um but at the same time i think you know not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but I think the real prize on the line for this team is 2026. And I'm really, really interested and excited and curious to see how this team grows, not just in the next eight months, but in the next four years before that home World Cup. Because what an opportunity that will be for these guys as they're most, if not all, entering or in the middle of their primes. Um, That'll be a really cool possibility. Anyway, Um, We're going to take a quick quick break. Stay with us. We have a lot more to come on the game in Costa Rica and the qualifying cycle as a whole. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. And we are back. Allocation disorder from San Jose, Costa Rica. The USMNT qualified for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar this fall. Paul, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the actual qualification campaign and some of the big moments in the match in the first segment. Let's wind it back a little further. Let's go back to last summer because I think that was such a critical period for this team winning the Nations League in June, beating Mexico in that crazy, crazy game in Denver, and then taking an entirely different squad, MLS team basically, to the Gold Cup and winning that again against Mexico with the final in August. Talk to me about the importance of what happened last summer. Well, it was, you know, it's easy to see when you look at what happened this window with the guys who weren't here for the U.S. men's national team. You know, Weston McKinney was out with a broken foot. Serginio Des was out with a hamstring injury. Brendan Aronson was out with a knee injury. Tim Weah missed a game with yellow card accumulation. So did DeAndre Yedlin. And so Reggie Cannon was out with COVID for a game. Two games, really. He didn't play. He didn't play tonight. So, Berhalter was reaching down into that depth chart for a really important game. It wasn't for like a throwaway. It was for a, a must-win World Cup qualifier. And a guy like Shaq Moore, who played in the Gold Cup, who started the Gold Cup final against Mexico, stepped into the game and did well in Orlando. You know, and I don't want to go too much into it because we talked about it last last show, but like. That was really important. And in addition to just creating that depth, it goes back to what we were talking about in the last segment. It was about creating camaraderie. It was about creating buy-in from the entire pool to have everyone feel like they could play a role. And I think that idea was important so that when guys got called up, they felt valued. They felt trusted. They felt a part of it. And DeAndre Yedlin actually is the one who made that point in that press conference that we were talking about last segment. It wasn't just joking about reggaeton and, and boomboxes. <laughs> no. You know, he said like – Him and Way actually both made some excellent He was like, it's crazy. You call Shaq Moore from across the ocean. He meets you in Orlando, hasn't been with the team in however long. And you're like, hey, man, you're starting today. <laughs> you know? And like yeah. – and he was great. And he was like, that happens because he felt a part of it. He felt like he knew his role. And he knew how to play because he, he had been there. And, and so that decision by Burhalter, I think, paid off in multiple ways, contributed to some of the, the key attributes of this group that we've talked about. 
and I think probably showed themselves more in this final window than they did at any other time in the in the months after the the summer tournaments. I would agree with that, and I would also say that it came with a cost at the beginning of qualifying. Sure. I remember having a debate with a friend of mine before it started, and he was like, Sam, why didn't the U.S. do what Tata in Mexico did, where they're calling the A-team to both? Like, these guys have not played that much together. And you call them to Nations League, and they play two competitive matches and two friendlies. Why, don't bring, why not bring them to the Gold Cup? Have, give them a whole month plus together. Have them play six games. Have them really work on stuff. Have them really come together as a group. Wouldn't that serve you better in qualifying? And I think the answer is like, yes, but, right? Yeah, it would have probably made that first window less insane. Probably would have been better in El Salvador and against Canada and, and less crazy in Honduras, right? But you wouldn't have developed the depth in the same way. And we've seen that with Mexico, right? Who, by the way, finished ahead of the U.S. in qualifying, right? So it's not like the U.S. has much to, to brag about in this way. But one of the issues that they had was that they didn't really develop any other answers beyond their first team. And that's a question that they still have. Now the qualifying's over, right? And the U.S. doesn't have that. They have answers. They have those solutions all over the place. Um, and I think that's really important, even if it hurt them and their overall points total in the in the Ocho. Well, Sam, I think that was one of the first really big decisions that Peralta made. Obviously, there were decisions before that. I mean, I remember the debate about Josh Sargent on the Gold Cup roster, Jossie Zardes. I mean, there were things that, you know, go way back to 2019 and 2020. Not as much 2020 because we didn't, we didn't have any games pretty much. But, you know, I think it highlights one of the bigger decisions by Peralta. And I wonder, you know, how you feel... How would you grade Berhalter? And I guess it's a pass-fail, like you said, but even looking at this window and the decisions he made here, pretty big one to go forward against Mexico. That point that they got at the Azteca ended up being pretty darn massive. You know, Taylor Twelman tweeted that, yes, that point was massive, but dropping points at home to Canada back in September were massive. That's, that's, that's on, true. That's on Greg Berhalter's report card. So what do you what do you say about Greg Berhalter's tenure in charge of this national team so far. Yeah, well, I think to answer your first question about the last window, I think you nailed it, right? Like, there was all that debate going into the Mexico game. Do you rotate? Do you start the A-team? What about Panama and Orlando? How is that going to have an effect? Um, he started the starters. They probably, they they definitely could have won. Um, Mexico could have scored two, by the way. So it's not like the U.S. only had the only chances in that match. They had the best ones, though. Um, then they play against Panama again. A lot of the same guys. And they, you know, it wasn't like as dominant, I think, as 5-1 might look. But it was still pretty dominant for the most part. Um, and, and they played really well. And then he then he ran out the same team again for the most part. Actually, the same 11 that started in Mexico down here tonight in Costa Rica. And, you know, they were, they were missing a little bit of sharpness, right? Um, they were also going against Kaylor Navas, one of the best goalkeepers. Sorry, Paul, the best goalkeeper. Let me correct myself before you can get in there. Yeah. In the entire world. Um, even though he doesn't start for his club. It's weird. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so he made some really nice saves. Costa Rica cleared a couple of balls off the line that Navas was probably beat on. Um, and then they gave up two not great set-piece goals. Like Zach Steffen got lost at sea on the second one. And the first one, you know, 
just kind of a, a regular corner kick that they didn't deal with well. So it wasn't an awesome performance, but it, they didn't look tired. They were jumping passing lanes all over the place. They were pressing pretty well, I thought. Um, they were getting out in transition decently. So I thought Burhalter pitched the right buttons for this window. And then overall, you know, there were some missteps in qualifying for sure. You know, uh, that Honduras game, they won, but that lineup was a disaster. Um, you know, there was a moment in the press conference with Berhalter the, before the Costa Rica game when he was talking about all the things that they had overcome in qualifying. And one of the things that he mentioned was the cold of the last window. And you and I looked at each other being like, come on, bro. Yeah. I think you texted me. Not only did we look at each other, but you texted me about I wrote it. I wrote it on my oh, computer. You wrote it, yeah, you wrote it and showed yeah. me, which was your, your line from your game story, which was manufactured adversity. Yeah. They made that up. That didn't need to happen. But I guess they did overcome it, to be fair. So <laughs> there's that. Um, but, you know, I don't think I would have done that same thing if I was Berhalter. The Canada game, I don't know how much I put it on him in that, the one at home. Do you? No, I mean, I, I thought I actually thought he made some some of the right choices in that Canada game. I I know people don't like it. I thought starting Jossie was the right call. I don't feel like there's any clear number nine. You know, it wasn't his fault that things went wrong on that goal kick. In my opinion, that was poor execution. Um, but, oh, I was talking about the first one. Oh, uh, at home. Yeah. Again, I I attribute that one to the lack of experience with the group. You know, I I think that there was a naivety. And I think that they were stunned coming out of El Salvador and that they didn't get a result and that they're trying to figure out what's going on. And then the night before or the day of the game, Weston McKinney gets suspended. Think that didn't have an impact on the group? Of course it did. And then you go into the game in Nashville, God bless them, 40,000 plus, nowhere close to the atmosphere of Orlando. And part of that was the performance as well. I think it's fair to say. Sure. It's it's easier to get up and ready and rocking when when they're but it Goals makes a difference when you when they're rocking and rolling anyway, and like yeah. they were in Cincinnati, and yeah, like they were in Orlando. I think uh, there's a note there too on soccer specific stadiums that are a little more intimate than NFL ones that 100%. are more cavernous. Yeah, it's like it's like what happened at the Azteca. Yeah, same thing compared to what we saw tonight in Costa Rica, which was the right there with El Salvador is the best atmosphere of, of qualifying on the road for the U.S. In my opinion. Yeah. So I mean. I agree, Sam. Look, I think ultimately, again, I believe that this is kind of a pass-fail thing for Greg Berhalter. I will say this. The other big thing that I would like to point out that I think is probably the most definitive decision that Berhalter made was to go young and stay young. Yeah. And and the reality is... Not everyone would have done that. It's not. And like you brought this up earlier, it's a decision that has a bigger impact on the next cycle than it does on this one, probably. Yeah. And there's no guarantee that Greg Berhalter will be the coach for the next cycle. I mean, he probably won't be. And so to make that decision was both a short term one and a long term one. But it wasn't a decision that a lot of managers would make. Even I'll point to Costa Rica, Costa Rica. People, they were the better, the best team in CONCACAF qualifying over the last seven games. It took, second half, the second half of the of the cycle. Yeah, they yeah. took 19 of 21 possible points, which is insane in, in their last seven games. And what was the difference? Well, the difference was they finally started to integrate younger players from the domestic league into the player pool and to trust them more. Now, they, they haven't 
fully trusted them until tonight when they were forced to by nine yellow cards on the team. But that was a pretty darn good performance. And Sam, there were a couple of really good players out there tonight. Yeah, Aguilera in particular was yeah. impressive. And that yeah. wouldn't have happened before. And in fact, it wasn't happening before. And it wasn't happening before so badly that Saborio was in <laughs> freaking Keep his name Columbus. out of your mouth. You know? I'll slap you. It's insane. It was insane. And I insane. brought that up to somebody um, this week ahead of this game. And I said, I, I just I can't believe that it took this long for Costa Rica to figure it out. And they said, not every coach is willing to stick a bunch of young players out on the field and watch them grow over qualification. Yeah. And and so out of all of the decisions, I think that one will pay off the most. Yeah. Not, although not for Burhalter, for U.S. men's national team. Considering what he was running out before these guys sort of aged up, right, and were ready. Like, I don't think it was probably that hard of a decision for him. I'm not talking about I, – I don't know. I, I would say yes and no to that. I mean, I think that there could be places where you say, okay, I'm going to figure things like, – like I thought that essentially – I mean, I'm on the record of having messed this decision up. I would have done it differently than Berhalter did. <laughs> but like starting Anthony Robinson, the left back, and letting him go through the growing pains. And even yeah. something like – you know, look at Honduras. I remember. Well, to to be fair, Anthony Robinson was gone for a year and a half too, so it's not like he was getting called in all the time. Yeah, but I, I mean, like that—that's like a, a a decision you're making. And I remember even criticizing like George Bello in Honduras. So the reality is, you know, someone said to me he's probably thinking about what it could look like in the World Cup in in November, and who are the yeah. other left backs in the pool, and you have to throw yeah. George Bello out there on the road in Concacaf to figure out what they have. You know, those are, those decisions, we, we say, oh, they're easy ones, but they're not. Sometimes they're not. Some, a lot of times coaches we deal with only think in the short term. Yeah, most of them. And and so I just think like, you know, window to window, there were decisions that were made. They were right. They were wrong. The lineup in Honduras was wrong. The adjustments yeah. at halftime were right. The decision in Mexico was right. The decision to play everyone again tonight in Costa Rica, you might be able to say it was wrong. I, I agree with you, Sam. I don't think it was an energy problem or a legs problem today. It was just bad defending on set pieces and Kaylor Navas being Kaylor Navas. But whatever, you can go through. I think, the, the, the again, the enduring decision, the thing that will have the biggest ramifications in Qatar and the thing that will have the biggest ramifications for 2026 is just that there was a willingness to say, yeah, we're going to go through some growing pains, but we're going to play mm-hmm. these guys. Ricardo Pepe, we're going to play that guy. Yeah. You know, and and stick him in the lineup on the road and and give him his debut there. And know? again, I, Pepe, by the way, I thought was okay tonight. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he tested Navas a couple of times. Forced a couple of good saves. Poor Miles Robinson, man. Ooh, Robs twice. Navas really didn't like Miles Robinson. Well, one of them, I think, was cleared off the line by a defender for Robinson. The half volley one. I don't think, I don't think Navas. Maybe I'm remembering it correctly. But anyway, yeah, he got unlucky for sure. Um, he got Navas. Uh, by the way, weird that the goalkeeper for Costa Rica came off as a sub in both matches that they played against the U.S. That was a bit strange. Navas knows. The first game was a little bit different. I don't know what happened there. But in this game, I think Novice was like, all right, did my job. We're going to get a victory. Let me give myself uh, a chance to say goodbye <laughs> he, to the He fans, wanted to walk off. my ovation, my last World Cup qualifier at home. And Has he announced he's retiring No, but I think, I think realistically the idea that he would be back in qualifiers in four years is 
<laughs> and if Mexico, U.S., and Canada aren't in qualifiers, the guy barely wants to come to camp when he doesn't have to in general. Yeah, I sure. don't know how much he'll be there. But either way, he was novice, man. It was yeah. great. Yeah, and they gave him a nice little send-off there for sure. Um, but to go back to your question about like how would we grade, how would I grade Beralter? I think going all the way back to the beginning, I thought he made some missteps in terms of how he wanted to play and how it didn't really fit the pool. And he spoke about that this week, right? Not so directly, but talking about learning how at the club level, it's about building. And at the national team level, it's about winning. And sometimes when it's about winning, you you don't have time to build the way you want to. And these are things that we and many other people were talking about as they were happening, right? (laughs) Um, Back in 2019, the play out of the back stuff and not really transitioning to become more of a transition pressing team until after that Canada game. So I thought that was kind of, you know, uh, foolish might be strong, but I thought it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, But since then, I think he's gotten a lot of stuff right. Uh, and I think the team's in a good place heading into the World Cup. So I think he's done a, a pretty nice job for the most part. And to wrap this idea up, Sam, I, again, I will go back to the fact that I actually think the culture is really good around the team. At least, again, we're not in the locker room. And we know well enough that not everyone in the locker room is going to like a coach. In fact, it never happens. But N- not everyone likes their boss. I think, goes. I think that the things that we're hearing from players about the relationships within that group in the locker room are real. It would be a pretty stunning head fake if they weren't. Yeah. They all talk about it all the time. So I think it's legit. Um, Paul, speaking of legit, let's go to a commercial break. Whoever's advertising the show, definitely legit. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. And we are back. Sam, tonight was incredible in so many different ways. We're going to go cover a World Cup, which is amazing, and... Uh, we wrote two stories that were pretty enjoyable to write, I thought. But it was also an amazing atmosphere. And I wonder, what are the images, the moments from tonight in San Jose that will stick with you the most? What What do you pull away from Estadio Nacional? A few different things. Um, well, many of them before the game, honestly. Yeah. There's a big party out on the street before the match. And I tweeted out a bunch of videos, so... If you're on Twitter, I would encourage you to go watch them because I thought they were pretty cool. But there was a full-ass marching band that came to the stadium. And we actually saw them walk by us at the media entrance before we went in. And they, they eventually turned to the corner. And, and they were playing right, in, right where the teams were coming in on their buses. And it's probably like, I don't know, a 40, 50-piece marching band. Like a full marching band. And they had probably like 20-ish dancers in traditional Costa Rican costume i don't know do, do you know what do you know what that's called paul yeah you got no, any idea? I, I don't i don't know the exact term for it but when i watched them it reminded me there used to be a, a latin american um parade in washington dc and uh there was a costa rican float that my good family friend don oscar used to have in a shed behind his house and we used to do the parade <laughs> every year and i i have pictures of myself and my sister dressed in that exact same garb all right, That's so tell, tell people what the garb is. Describe it. Well, for the women, it's like a um, a dress, like a, a a layered skirt kind of that has they call, the colors. They call those hoop skirts? Yeah, maybe. And and it's got the colors of the Costa Rican flag around the border of it and um, similar on the shoulders of the top of the dress and um, very flowy and it, you're able to dance with it. Um, you know, you kind of lift dan- the skirt. You, you kind of dance with the skirt. Yeah. Um, and for the men... I don't think there were many of the men in the in the garb, but typically it's like uh, no, there were there were a decent amount out there. Yeah, there you know you usually have like the white shirt, the white pants, the red bandana, cowboy uh, hats. I and, saw. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like a, a white hat typically that's like either a cowboy style or a rounder version of that. Um, yeah, it looked cool. It looked cool, and, and the music was good, and everyone was out there having a good time dancing. There was like more of a there was a different band that was playing and dancing. It was more of like a carnival feel um behind them um so that was really cool you know it was a beautiful night down here um the sunset was incredible the colors were amazing and as the crowd filled in right before right before the kickoff um as the teams were walking out of the tunnel that was a really cool moment for me um just kind of seeing they set off a ton of fireworks and the crowd got really 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 loud um doing the i don't even know what they were chanting at the time I think it was ole 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 ticos although oa there's yeah, no ole, l ole, ole. yeah yeah there's no l in ole in costa rica learned that tonight um so that was really cool um but yeah like i said i mean i was lucky enough to go to all of the qualifiers el salvador for me was far and away the best one entering tonight in terms of atmosphere I would still probably put that top, but this one was really close, like really close. So yeah, there were a lot of moments that stood out to me like that. And then, you know, to take it personal for a second for me, Paul, and we'll get to that for you in a moment, seeing um, Jeff Crandall after the game. 
Uh, he's the he's one of the USMNT digital guys. Uh, does a lot of work on the website and writing stuff and, and whatnot. Um, seeing him after the game, I kind of pulled him aside to talk, and and he just he came in and he's like, ah, who are we kidding? And he gave me a hug, and I just just sort of thinking back. Um, Jeff and I have known each other since 2010, I think, when he started working for the Chicago Fire and when I was a sophomore in college covering that team, despite being a total ignoramus about how to do that job. Um, and, and just thinking back to those days when, you know, uh, Brian McBride was on that team. Now he's the GM of the USMNT. Uh, and, and Carlos De Los Cobos was the head coach and it was a complete disaster. <laughs> and, and so thinking back to those days and then just like being able to be here with him, someone who was there at the start of my soccer journey and, and vice versa for me and him was really cool. Um, and I didn't even really think about that ahead of time until I saw him and until he gave me that hug. So that was really neat. Um, and then just to see the players too and what it meant to them, that was kind of powerful as well. So those were some of the moments that stood out. But Paul, this isn't my, this isn't my hometown. You know, your family is from here. You're staying in Costa Rica to stay with your aunts and uncles and, and see your cousins and stuff. And I saw you in the anthem. Um, it was cool to see you. It was cool to be here with you in the place where your dad is from. So tell, tell us about that experience for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I think it was a few windows ago, Sam, that I first started thinking about it. Um, you and I talked about it. I was going to write something originally. I ended up not, you know, obviously qualifying for the world cup to take precedent over any kind of personal writing, but I knew that it was going to mean a lot to me. Um, and, you know, I, I knew I was in trouble tonight when we were doing our live room for the athletic. <laughs> the live room, I couldn't hear anything. We couldn't hear way. anything. The, the, yeah. the crowd was going crazy. Our internet wasn't great. Um, but I started talking about kind of uh, how emotional it felt for me to be there. And I started to tear up just talking about it. And uh, I was like, oh, boy, I'm really in trouble. And, um, yeah, I mean... There's so much that goes into it, you know, like I haven't been home, home here in Costa Rica in 20 years, which is crazy. And I hadn't really thought about it until I was think like I had to like do the math because I don't feel that old that it could be that long. Um, and you think about all the things that you prioritized over coming back here. And yeah, I had chances to see family members when they were visiting the U.S. But, you know, you realize those missed moments. And so, you know, also... You know, there's stuff going on with my dad that, like, health-wise, that just factored in. And so when the when the anthem started playing, you know, you think about all that stuff. And uh, you look. I looked around the stadium, and I thought about my dad, and I thought about this incredible, incredible journey. You know, that my dad would leave Costa Rica at 19 years old, knowing one word of English: hamburger. And <laughs> great that, word to know. Yeah. Great and words. that 42 years later, his son would come back to that country and be in that stadium watching that, writing about it, getting the opportunity professionally to do that. It was extremely powerful and emotional and still is thinking about it. And it's something I'll never, ever forget. I don't think there will be anything that could ever match that. Even going and covering a World Cup for the first time 
you know, that will that will tie together the elements that I felt when the anthem was playing and I looked around and watched all the waves, the flags waving and, you know, hearing the anthem playing. It was it was uh, an incredible moment. And yeah, it'll be the thing that sticks with me most of anything here. And then you take that emotion and the personal ties I feel and all of that and you add to it that, you know, it was a dream of mine to cover World Cup qualifying for a long time now. And I hadn't had a chance to do it until now. And I thought about that journey. And then you take the next level, which is that tonight the U.S. got the result that ensures that I'll cover a World Cup for the first time. And you you take that and then you add in all the other scenes that you were talking about, Sam. I mean, stepping out and taking a picture in front of a, a beautiful sunset in Costa Rica from the stadium and, you know, seeing the different elements of this country and my friends experiencing them that I thought are so cool and beautiful and wonderful and um, all of those things really, really impactful. But yeah, I mean, that national anthem for me is uh, just a really special moment. Yeah, well, it was cool to, to witness it as your friend, knowing what you've been through to be there. So it was cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add, but I, I, I've been doing this. I've done it a few times already tonight on Twitter. So I hope it's not becoming trite, but I do want to sincerely thank all of you that listen to this show. It's been really cool. Um, seeing people, especially in this window, I feel like more than others, uh, come up to us and chat with us about the show (laughs) and just be like, Hey, like, are you Sam? Are you Paul? Like, yeah, we listen to allocation disorder. Like love what you guys do. That's incredible. Like this is a weird random podcast and like, it's cool that we get to reach people and hopefully this has created somewhat of a community. So thank you guys for listening and supporting us and for reading our work and for subscribing to the athletic to enable us to do all of these cool things. Cause, cause I think I can speak for you, Paul, when I say this, but we're like, we're living our dreams here. Um, just like the players are like they were talking about after this game. Um, and it's so it's an incredible journey and it's impossible. It's possible because of everybody that consumes the stuff that we put out. So thank you for that Ser- sincerely from, uh, from the bottom of my heart. We appreciate you guys. And uh, yeah, if you ever see us out there in the wild, don't hesitate to come up. It was really cool in Orlando. We played pickup. I don't know if we talked about this on the last show, did we? No, no, no. I don't think so. I think we meant to and we forgot. We played pickup with uh, with the guys from the Scuffed podcast. They put together a, a little pickup game or a big pickup game. There were like a hundred people there. And we had a bunch of people come up to us and talk to us about it. And I was like, damn, this is kind of cool. Um, so anyway, thank you for everyone that said hello. It happened. And it, thank it, you. it goes from Orlando to the bar here in Costa Rica at yeah. the hotel. I mean, it, yeah. it, it really is special and neat and validating and yeah. uh, motivating. And we appreciate We appreciate. <laughs> I almost knocked over my microphone just now. She's super excited. <laughs> that was that sound. Sam's super excited. It's two in the morning here in Costa Rica. Uh, we, I think we've been in three different time zones. We're we're just all over the place. Sam's falling apart, as you can hear from his voice. Uh, I'm almost. almost crying on the podcast. It, it's time to wrap. Almost, up. almost. <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay, macho man. But anyway, thanks to all of you guys for listening. Thanks for following along during World Cup qualifying. We'll be back with you know some more of our regular scheduled programming uh, in the next week. We'll be back on Friday with World Cup draw content. Lots and lots of World Cup draw content um that will be fascinating to see where the u.s ends up um and then yeah we'll be taking this bad boy all the way through to qatar so i'm excited paul 
you're excited. Hopefully all of you out there are as excited as we are. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam. He's Paul. This has been Allocation Disorder. Allocation Disorder.